What a great song. God is with us. You know, when I was growing up, I wasn't a big fan of Christmas music. I was one of those enforcers of the arbitrary rule to not listen to any Christmas music until after Thanksgiving and only certain kinds of Christmas music. Didn't want to hear any Christmas shoes or any of that. Sorry if you like that song. But uh, over the years, perhaps unsurprisingly, I've come to become more of a fan of Christmas music, especially the kind we sing here in church. And as I've listened more and more to these Christmas carols that we sing every year, the classics, you know, we sang uh, several this morning, I hear a word to describe Jesus, a term, a title for Jesus uh, over and over in these songs. See if you can notice as I read some of the lyrics. From come thou long expected Jesus, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Or the chorus from angels from the realms of glory. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn king. The first Noel we sang this morning, the chorus of that song, Noel, Noel, whatever that means, born is the king of Israel. Angels we have heard on high, come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. Or what child is this? What's the answer to the question? This, this is Christ the king whom shepherds guard and angels sing. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. And finally, my kid's favorite one, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. But for all that we sing this time of year about Jesus being king, I wonder how often we stop and think, what kind of king is he? That's really the key question for us, is what kind of king is Jesus? If these songs are not meant to just be sentimentalized, cultural, Christmas season sort of things, then we need to really consider what does it mean that Jesus is a king? Well, to answer that question today, I'd like us to look at a passage of scripture Uh, Not one that speaks about the events of his birth, but one that speaks about the day of his death. So turn, if you would, to John chapter 18, and we'll be looking at verses 33 to 38. Now, just to give a bit of context as we come to this passage, the baby Jesus had grown into a man, and he had been arrested and put on trial by the Jewish leaders. Now, this was not a fair trial. To call it a trial might even be a misnomer. According to Jewish law, no charge could stick in court without at least two witnesses bearing testimony. Well, the Jewish leaders didn't call any witnesses. And not only did they not call any witnesses, when they questioned Jesus, he directed them to the witnesses. He said, you're asking about my teaching. I've been teaching publicly for a long time. Go ask the people that heard what I said. But they didn't want any part of that. Instead, they beat him. And they delivered him over to the Romans under the presumption of guilt to be executed. 
They weren't interested in the truth. They only wanted him dead. And so they brought him to the Roman governor, whose name was Pontius Pilate, and they demanded that Pilate order the execution. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? I think it's safe to say that Pilate had not been listening to Christmas music, and yet he still has this understanding or inclination that Jesus is some sort of king. Now, I think there's good reason for that. In Luke's gospel, we're told that when the Jewish leaders came and brought Jesus before him, they said, we found this man misleading our nation, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So in a sense, that was the charge against him. Now, you have to understand something about the Roman world. There were only two kinds of kings besides Caesar. One kind of king was the kind that kept the title and sort of some of the privileges, the amenities of being a king, but essentially did whatever Rome told them to do. Uh, they were sort of a puppet ruler for Rome. That was one kind. The other kind were the kings that really wanted authority for themselves, and so they would take up arms and fight against Rome. That usually did not end too well for those people. But those are the two kinds of kings that would have been in Pilate's mind. And so he asked this question to probe a little bit. What kind of king is Jesus, if that's the charge against him? So he says, are you the king of the Jews? It seems like a straightforward question to us as modern readers. We say, well, yes or no. Well, Jesus couldn't exactly say no, because that was the truth. He was the king of the Jews. The lineage in Matthew's gospel teaches us he was the rightful king of that nation. But he also couldn't say yes either. Because for him to say, yes, I am the king of the Jews, would have given Pilate the wrong idea. Pilate didn't have a category for who Jesus was as the king of the Jews. And so he responds with a question of his own. Do you say this of your own accord? Or did someone else tell you about me? Essentially saying, do you really want to know, Pilate? Do you want to know the truth? Can you handle the truth? Or are you just a puppet of some crowd out to execute someone? Well, Pilate, with all the condescension he can muster, responds, am I a Jew? In other words, I, I want nothing to do with you people. They're the ones who brought you to me. You must have done something. Well, Jesus is going to give him the truth, if only he can handle it. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not from here. It's not like the kingdoms that you're familiar with, Pilate. You've got certain categories in your mind, and I don't fit those categories. And so we have to learn from Jesus this morning that he is not like the world's kings. 
And the first way we know that is his authority doesn't come from this world. Every king or every government in the history of the world, just about, has ruled by force. In other words, whoever's got the strongest army or the best weapons, they're the ones who are in charge. That would have been the case in the time of Rome, certainly. Everyone ruled by force. But Jesus didn't have authority by force. It didn't come from wielding an army. In fact, numerous times in John's gospel, he says his authority comes from the one who sent him. That is, his authority comes from God himself. It comes from heaven. And that means his source of authority isn't dependent on whether he can keep defeating the enemies, whether he can maintain the strongest army. It doesn't work that way. His authority is unchanging because it comes from God. Now you would think, if God showed up and decided to exert his authority in a world that has rebelled against him and opposed him at every turn, that he would just wipe everyone out and start over. What kind of king would put up with disloyal subjects, with rebellious subjects? That's not what God does. Jesus is God's only chosen king, the king of the whole world that we sing about at Christmas. And yet here we see him standing trial, an unjust trial, for crimes that were not real crimes and awaiting an execution that was totally uncalled for. But he did all of this to pay the penalty for our sins. That's how God exercises his authority, to save his people, not to dominate them. Napoleon, who was one of the world's kings for a little while, he recognized this. said, Alexander... Caesar, Charlemagne, myself, all founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire on love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. Gotta love Napoleon with the humble brag there. The genius of my creation, or my creation genius, my empire. But there's actually a profound insight in what he says here. He knew what it took to wield an army and to defeat all opposition. And he says, this guy, Jesus, has this incredible following and he didn't wield any army. He didn't go out and just defeat people by sheer force. Jesus' authority doesn't look like the world's kings. His authority doesn't come from the world and it's not exercised in the way the world exercises authority. His authority comes from God and it's exercised through love. But even as Napoleon says millions are willing to die for him, it's worth noting that Jesus' servants don't fight to establish his kingdom in this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be handed over to the Jews. So it makes sense that if your kingdom is dependent on the world, you're going to fight the way the world fights in order to maintain your authority. That's not what Jesus does. Now, it's worth noting at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 18, one of his servants, Peter, did pull out a sword and started hacking away in a very feeble attempt to whatever. But Jesus immediately rebuked him. Put that away. That's not how we do things. Earlier in John's gospel, we saw a crowd that had just gotten a free meal from Jesus. They said, hey, this guy's pretty good. We should make him king. It says in John 6.15, perceiving 
that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountains by himself. He says, if you guys want to form a mob and go storm the capital, you don't clearly understand why I'm here. You don't understand what it means for me to be the Christ, a king. And so he gets away from that before it gets out of hand. And it's worth saying that the same dynamic about the kingdom of God applies to us today. There are people in the world today who want to fight to make this a Christian nation. There are people who want to take up arms in the cause of Christ. But that's not how Jesus works. Jesus doesn't form a mob or storm buildings. Now, there's absolutely a place for Christians to advocate in the public square for policies that will lead to human flourishing. But as the Apostle Paul says, we don't, we don't take people captive, we take thoughts captive. We don't destroy things, we destroy arguments. We fight with the weapons of our warfare, which is a spiritual warfare. And so we need to be aware that any movement that seeks to fight violently for the cause of Christ is not operating under Christ's authority. It's either a misguided or nefarious motive. Jesus is clear. His servants don't fight to establish his kingdom in this world. And we can be okay with that because we don't need to fight to establish his kingdom because his kingdom can't be thwarted by the kings of this world. If there was ever a dark moment in the history of God's kingdom, it was this scene where Jesus, it appears, is fighting for his life. And yet what amazes me about this whole trial and execution is Jesus never loses control. He's in control the entire time. When the soldiers came to arrest him, Jesus knew what was going to happen and he approached them. He said, who are you looking for? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am he. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus all by himself overpowers a company of soldiers with a word. When they arrested him, he told them to let the disciples go. Now keep in mind, usually the object of the threat doesn't get to make demands, right? When the soldiers come, you're coming with them and doing whatever they tell you. But Jesus said to let them go, and they did because he was in control. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus' word still prevails even in the midst of the chaos. When the Jews held their mockery of a trial, they refrained from killing him, and they said it's because their law prevents them from killing him. They didn't really seem too concerned about keeping the law when it came to the witnesses or several other points along the way. So why didn't they kill Jesus on their own? Because his word was still sovereign. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Even in the face of certain death, Jesus' word still prevails. When Pilate handed Jesus over to be beaten and whipped, the soldiers couldn't help but confess the truth about him. Even in the midst of the abuse, they have to say, Hail, King of the Jews. Even as they're raining down blows on him, there's nothing else they can testify. In the midst of their mockery, they tell the truth. When Pilate threatened Jesus with death and claimed his authority over Jesus, what did Jesus say? 
You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Even the powerful Roman Empire had no authority over this man. Amazing. From start to finish, he's in control. And even as he hung on a Roman cross and died, we have to acknowledge that this was not him as the object of Rome's wrath, but this was something he willingly chose to do. No one takes my life from me, he said, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Nothing could thwart the kingdom of God. If Jesus' kingdom couldn't be thwarted by the Jews, by the Romans, by the soldiers, by the disciples who deserted him, even by death itself, his kingdom could not be thwarted. Then certainly we, who are his followers, must believe that Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted by any government of this world, by any societal trends, by any philosophy, by any secular arguments, by any public education system. Jesus' kingdom cannot be thwarted. It can't be thwarted by election results, by the failures of the church, by your sin or mine. Jesus' kingdom continues to march on. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be defeated. And you see this all over the world. People talk about how in America the religion is on the decline or Christianity is on the decline. What they're talking about is a few denominations where you see a downward trend in church attendance. But they're not paying attention to the whole scope of things. We have these mission conferences every year, and we get to hear that all over the world, the kingdom of God is advancing, spreading like wildfire. People recognizing Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God, and that his authority is the only authority that's ultimately worth following. All over the world, God is testifying to the fact that every attempt to eliminate the kingdom of Christ has failed and will continue to fail. His kingdom cannot be thwarted, and it marches on. His kingdom marches on because, as the song says, his truth is marching on. He is the king who testifies to the truth. In verse 37, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Well, that's a powerful statement. Up until this point in the scene, you might be thinking Jesus is the one on trial. In fact, if you look in your Bible, there might be a little subheading that says Jesus before Pilate, something along those lines. By the time we get to verse 37, we see that it's not really Jesus that's on trial, but Pilate himself and with him the rest of the world. See, Jesus is not the defendant, he's the witness. God has come into the world. As Carol sang so beautifully a moment ago, God is with us. He's come into the world. And the real question is not for Pilate to ask Jesus, what have you done? But for Jesus to ask us, what have we done? God showed up in this world. When I worked with the college ministry years ago, we used to go on campus, and I don't think you could actually do this as easily anymore. We'd walk through the dorms and look for an open door to you know, strike up a conversation, maybe share the gospel. 
And uh, as we'd walk through, we'd have all kinds of conversations. You know, Michigan State is such a, an amazing mission field. People from all over the world, all different uh, spiritual backgrounds. But one of the common things I would hear as we would have these conversations is, you know, I would believe in God if he just showed up. You know, all this stuff with religion is just sort of one book or another book or one person's word against another word. If God would just show up, I would believe. What's the problem with that? He has showed up. God did show up. And what did we do? What have we done? Well, John told us what happened when he came. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This isn't about Jesus being on trial before a Roman governor. This is about the creation recognizing its creator. Would we recognize him when he showed up? Would we honor him as he deserved? Would we give thanks to him as he deserved? What would the verdict be? Well, the verdict depends on the testimony of the witnesses. And what did Jesus testify? I testify about the world that its works are evil. And so, because that's his testimony, he's the one sent from God with all the authority that God has invested in him. And he's testifying that the world is evil. He can offer a preliminary verdict. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That might be unsettling to us. Once you feel the weight of the script being flipped, that it's not really Jesus who's on trial here but us, and we stand here as the defendants, and we're listening to this testimony, and it's not good because he's telling the truth about us. I think every one of us deep down knows this to be true. Sometimes you get to the end of the year and you start thinking about New Year's resolutions, you think about the past year. Think about your life. How much of this year have you done something you knew you were not supposed to do? Even by your own standards, you shouldn't have done that thing. Or perhaps on the flip side, even more powerfully, what are those things that you wish you had done those things that you knew were the right things to do and you failed to do them. Deep down, we all know that Jesus' testimony is true and it hurts because he testifies that our deeds are evil. But the good news is he doesn't just testify that our deeds are evil because if that was the end of the testimony, we'd be in bad shape. But because we know that much to be true about ourselves, we know that other things that he says are true as well. Whatever Jesus says is the truth. He's the king of truth. And what's the truth that he testified to? He said he is the one who comes to bring living water. For all the things that we think will satisfy in this life, we're always going to need to go back for more. If any of you have ever struggled with addiction, you know how this is. It's like this thing that your heart desires, you just can't get enough. It's insatiable. You always got to go back for more. And all of us have varying degrees of that, where we've sought satisfaction in something in this world. Only Jesus satisfies our soul in a way that we won't desire anything but him. He's the bread of life, he said. All this world has to offer is food that perishes. You know, I love a good meal. 
I was talking to Dale before church today about, you know, Christmas meal and prime rib and all this delicious food for Christmas. You know, the problem with that is the food perishes and you're going to be hungry again. But Jesus has the words of eternal life and those who eat his word will live. Jesus testified that he's the light of the world. All this world ultimately has to offer us is darkness, confusion, frustration, empty promises, disappointment. You know that to be true. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And whoever knows the truth, whoever walks by his light, will be truly free. Will walk in freedom and flourish as human beings were meant to, as we were meant to, if we walk by his light. Jesus says he is the good shepherd. All this world has to offer us are thieves and robbers. People in your life that want to take from you, that want to exploit you, manipulate you. Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. In fact, he died so that we could have that life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The bottom line is all this world has to offer us is 80 or so years by reason of strength. Those years are often full of misery and they most certainly end in death. Jesus says, everyone who believes in me, even though they die, yet will they live. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the good news. And that's the truth, if you'll believe it. Only Jesus can offer the satisfaction of our souls that we long for. The question is, will we listen to him? Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This isn't so much a plea. He's not trying to convince here. He's offering a statement of fact. If you listen to his voice, that is, if you listen to his voice, believe his word, love him, sincerely aim to obey his commands, then you can be confident that you're of the truth. We live in a world today where truth has just been under attack. Right? You think about the kingdom of God coming under attack. The very existence of truth is under scrutiny and constant attack. We live in a world where truth is relativized and its very existence constantly questioned, where identity is something we just decide for ourselves, we make it up out of thin air. It's important that we recognize that we don't get to decide what it means to be Christian. Jesus does. And he says, everyone who listens to my voice is of the truth. Are we listening to his voice? If we don't listen to his voice, if we don't really believe his word, if we don't really love him or don't even intend to obey his commands, then we could be equally confident that we are not of the truth, that we do not belong to him, at least not yet. Pilate's answer to Jesus here has become somewhat famous, the question, what is truth? Sounds kind of profound, doesn't it? What is truth? You think about philosophers down the ages that have debated this question and all kinds of people uh, wrestling with it even to this day. You can find it in books of quotations and tweeted from time to time. And on the surface, it seems profound, doesn't it? What is truth? But in reality, it's not a profound question. It's an indictment. See, Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
When Pilate says, what is truth? He's saying, I don't even know what that means, Jesus. What does it mean to have Jesus as king? He's the king of truth. He's the one who testifies to the truth. Do you believe his word? Do you listen to his voice? Pilate's answer shows that in the moment, at least, he is not of the truth. And he is not a follower of Jesus. So what about us? What about you? Jesus is the king of truth. His kingdom is characterized by the truth. Do you believe the truth? Do you walk in the truth? Do you love the truth? Do you listen to his voice? Are we listening today? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world to testify to the truth of who you are as our creator, as our king, as our judge, but to testify to the truth of who he is, our redeemer, our savior, the one who came and stood trial even as a king so that through his death he might purchase a people for himself. God, I pray that we would take these words into careful consideration today. Help us to listen to his voice. Help us to yearn for his voice and to seek out his voice as we go through our day-to-day lives. Help us not to be drowned out by all the, the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season that we fail to listen to the voice of our Savior and our King. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Oh, come let